Well, good day. My name is Mark Brown, and you are listening to the Valley in the Shadows podcast. Welcome. Well, it is such a pleasure for me to welcome a very special guest uh, to my podcast. Someone who I met 14 years ago on a plane flight. At the time, I had just started as Chief Executive Officer of Bible Society in a far-flung land called New Zealand, also known as Aotearoa, or for fans of movies, Middle Earth. And I had been there for in that role not very long. I'd been in the country a few years. And I was taking a flight back from uh, Auckland, uh, the city in the north, down to Wellington, the capital. And I happened to sit across from this guy, Aaron Ironside. And, you know, back then (laughs) I was probably more chatty and extroverted on flights, less now. And I remember striking up a conversation and just being fascinated. Turns out uh, that Aaron at that time was the morning DJ of a fantastic show on a the Christian radio station in New Zealand called Radio Rima, and thus began a relationship. Uh, he would he interviewed me. I had a regular spot. I think, if I remember rightly, my first spot with him, I talked about Steve Irwin. Uh, so I, I clearly the Australian stereotype uh, was live and well, and I was okay with that. But Steve, I think, had just died, or there was something going on there. But it struck up a relationship. And what, what impresses me about the uh, Aaron, who I'm about to introduce and, and welcome to the podcast, is he is a man of deep substance, uh, uh, well-qualified, uh, and I know he's got a, 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 an incredible story to tell, and I look forward to hearing him share it and to talk about his journey and process. So, Aaron Ironside, welcome to the podcast. Mark, it's so wonderful to be here. Kia ora from all the way down under in New Zealand. <laughs> Kia ora. Kia ora. I haven't said that phrase in a while. Aaron, I know you've had an incredibly tough childhood, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us some of what happened for you. Well, I think that for me, the kind of the big turning point in my my adult life was around about age 37. My father-in-law had died. This had been a big event in my life, and I'd felt kind of a bit lost at sea. Some other things had been happening. At that stage, I was pastoring a church, People were leaving the church. I wasn't sure what to do with that. And the denomination said, you know, we've got a counselor who's a, one of the former pastors of our of our network of churches. Why don't you have a chat with him? Yeah. And I didn't think much of the, the opportunity, but thought, oh, well, you know, why not? Well, I remember after my first session with Richard, going over to a mate of mine's house and having a cup of coffee and saying, I think I've just had the most important 60-minute conversation of my life. Mm. Uh, as we began to unpack my story, really, and and to trace the story back from 30 years earlier and events that had occurred when I was just a small child and how this had set me up for a certain way of thinking about myself, about the world, about others, uh, and, and the pain that I sort of carried with me for those 30 years. It was only at that age that I really started to deal with that pain. And as a result of that, I was so... Uh, transformed. I remember my wife saying to a friend on the phone 
one day I overheard her saying, I'm still getting used to the new Aaron. <laughs> and uh, something had happened in my life as I'd come to terms with that story. Uh, and it's that story that you know has been the launch pad for me uh, right today, where for the last eight years or so, I've been putting my master's degree in psychology mm. to good use uh, as a counsellor in private practice. Uh, but really, I do it not because of the degree, but because of the personal journey of healing that I'd gone on that had changed so much of my own life that I wanted other people to taste that freedom, to know that healing, and to realize that the things that happen to us, that shape us, they don't have to define our story. Why do you think that an event that happened when you were around seven, and and, I, and if you're free, if you're willing to share what that event is, certainly uh, I would love to hear that. Um, absolutely, uh, feel free or, or not. Why do you think it took 30 years to come to the surface? What, what, why do you think it took so long? Well, I think as you'll hear the story, some of the things that I concluded as a child, in one sense, set me up for success, mm. of a kind at least. Uh, and because life in so many ways had gone quite well for me, in my adult life, I'd, I'd been a successful broadcaster mm. uh, in a secular career. There'd been billboards of me around the city. Mm -hmm. I'd been on the number one breakfast show in Auckland. Things had gone well, and and because things had gone well in one area, it had covered up the pain of another. So mm. I, I should share the story. Yeah, please do. In order to to know the the kind of the context is, is sort of everything. My mother was raised as the only child of a solo mum back in an era where there was great stigma about this. Uh, the local Catholic church had told my nana that she couldn't have my mum baptised because she'd been born in sin. In fact, it turns out there was quite a scandalous story involved. A local politician had had an affair with my nana, and when he found out that my nana was pregnant, he skipped town. Uh, <laughs> At this point in New Zealand, I joke that's why we vote national, or maybe it would. Uh, that's why we vote Republican. Uh, that would be <laughs> to help the joke uh, translate. Uh, and so, when I was seven, my nana died of bowel cancer, mm. and for my mum, of course, this had meant that in so many ways it, it would have felt to her like her whole family had died. She didn't mm. have any siblings. She didn't have a dad. Mm. She'd only ever known her mum. Uh, and so my mum was devastated by this loss. Mm. And it wasn't long after Nana died that it was Mother's Day. And it must have been very close to the funeral time because my dad had forgotten it was Mother's Day. And I remember on the Sunday morning of Mother's Day, my dad sort of comes to me and says, oh, look, it's Mother's Day. Why don't you go and buy a box of what used to be called the sampler box of biscuits, where it had a kind of a few biscuits from an entire range from a biscuit company mm. in the one box. Go mm. and buy the sampler box for mum. So I went down to the local supermarket. Thankfully, it literally was around the block from my house. I didn't even have to cross a road to get to it. Mm. Bought the sampler box, and I was coming back. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a good day. It's Mother's Day. I love my mum. I'm going to have that biscuit and that biscuit, that cookie. Yep. And... Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I thought it's going to be a good day. So I'd turn up in my mother's bedroom. She still hadn't left the bed that day. She was still in the deepest of depressions. Not that I really understood that. Mm. And I present her with this this box of cookies. And she looks at them and she throws them on the carpet. And she says to me, "You've forgotten it's Mother's Day. You're a terrible son." Oh, and I run from the room crying. I mean, I'm just a small child. Mm. 
run from the room crying. Now, my dad, he knew that this moment was essentially something that he had created by forgetting Mother's Day. So he comes into the bedroom to try and calm my mother down, who is at this point crying and ranting and really carrying on. Mm. And nobody ever comes to me. Nobody ever comes and comforts me. Nobody ever comes and says, Mum didn't mean those words. She's just feeling upset today. Nothing happened to comfort me that day. Mm. And so those words, you're a terrible son, they got burnt into my soul. Mm. And, and in order to answer this question, so why didn't it come up until much later? It was kind of like the next story in the chain of events that seemed connected for me was a few years later in the first year of high school. I'd been a very average student through the elementary uh, school years. And, and, and by the time I got to high school, nobody really expected that I was much of a student. Anyway, <laughs> at high school, the girls arrived. I'd been at a Catholic school where it was boys only until high school. Mm. And then at high school, the girls arrived. And maybe the presence of girls made me believe that I should, well, I couldn't impress them with my muscly body, so maybe I could impress <laughs> them with my muscly brain. And suddenly I became this straight A student overnight. Mm. I remember my parents coming to the parent-teacher evening early in the year and the teachers were just glowing about how well I was doing and I was, you know, I was performing at a level several grades above the one I was in. And I remember my parents looking so proud and so relieved. I mean, they, I think they knew I was smart. They didn't understand why it had never shown up in the classroom. Mm. But I remember kind of somehow deep down in that moment kind of figuring, oh, I get this. If you can do the right thing, if you can perform you're not a terrible son. If you can get good grades, you're not a terrible son. And so that's what I decided really as a teenager, that I would become an overachiever. Wow. Because that's how I was going to keep that feeling of being a terrible son buried in the hopes that nobody else would know the deep, dark truth about me, that I was terrible. There's one statement when you were young, seven, uh, what what is sometimes called a life commandment, right? A, a, an ingrained uh, belief uh, that really you you carried forward so prominently that even as when you hit high school, you were you were referencing it in making your decisions about academic success, about uh, how you relate to to girls, uh, obviously uh, relationships with boys as well. Like, is it fair to say? that it was an overarching life principle of yours, that you were actually a failed, a terrible son? Or was it more you just kind of, it was there in the background, uh, quietly bubbling away? I think it was mostly quietly bubbling away. I think that I, I was lucky enough to be the sort of kid that had quite a few talents, particularly ones that my, my mum appreciated. She was a singer in her youth and I was a good singer. And yeah. these little moments where she was sort of happy with me, pleased with me. And I think, just sort of looking back, of course, that I was so hungry for that affirmation, so hungry to be for her to be pleased with me because, of course, she was the person who also seemed to think this dark truth about me. So in many respects, I buried it deep down and was able to keep it buried because I could keep pointing to my latest accomplishment. It was kind of keeping everything uh, ticking along. But what it was making me was hungry for success 
and in a way that meant that I, I couldn't just enjoy success for its own sake. I mean, I needed it. I needed applause. I needed people to tell me I was good because I'd heard this deep message that maybe I wasn't. And did it ever work? Uh, in other words, did you ever kind of reach a point where the, the applause, the adulation actually was enough to to silence the, the this inner voice, this story that you'd been, this script that had been written for you from a young age. Did it, did it ever work? Well, ironically, you know, I'd get plenty of this praise because yeah. I was able to achieve in the right kinds of areas, but I would often push it away hmm. and often kind of bat it away. I wouldn't let it ever really sink in, although in the moment, of course, I would experience this this pleasure, particularly as a performer, when the crowd applauds, this mm. kind of instantaneous sense that in some way I'm loved, I'm, in some way I'm wanted in that moment. But it would fade very quickly. Uh, it wouldn't stick around. Mm. And, and of course, then by contrast, if ever there was the message that I wasn't okay, mm. if ever I did the wrong thing, didn't measure up, well, I would fixate on that. I could not let that go at all. That would stick like glue. Mm. And it wouldn't take anything at all. It would be, I'll give you an example of how my brain works. I can still tell you that at the end of high school, in the, in the final prize giving, several students were asked to read various prayers mm-hmm. as part of, this is a Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. And I can still tell you that I sped up in the second half of my prayer. <laughs> My brain is still remembering wow. that I didn't read it perfectly. Wow. But I, I got faster towards wow. the end of the prayer because I was a bit nervous. Wow. It's these sorts of things where my brain can't let go of that. And here it is some 30 years later. Yep. I can still sense it as yep. if it were yesterday. So how um, this – I've got many questions, and I don't want to kind of get them out of order here because I do actually want to give you a chance to unfold it at, at your pace. But but probably the one as I think through how I can ask, ask these – your relationship with your mum then, um, as as the as you went through high school, started your career, your your face was on the billboards, you were a recognised uh, personality, um, and that continued for years. What happened with your mum in all of this? Did were you able to reconcile? Did you push her away? Did you draw her close? How did you relate to her through this? Given given that history that you had. Oh, look, it's been a fraught relationship, sadly, and, and, and to this day continues uh, to be a source of, of pain for a, a variety of reasons. I mean, you add in the complicating factor for my mum that her own mental wellness is not, is not strong, and therefore oh. she has been prone to making kinds of decisions and, uh, and saying things that have been so hurtful and unhelpful over the years as well. Uh, look, I, I struggle to really bond to my mum, I did not connect to her well, uh, and so, in truth, the the more successful I became, the more distant I became. I, I wouldn't visit home very often. Mm. I was being admired from a distance. My parents were very proud of me, happy to tell their friends. Aaron's doing so well. He's on the radio. He's he's doing so marvelously. But but I was uh, disconnected from them personally, and and sadly that that's still the case uh, today. Uh, and in many respects, you know, from a place of kind of resignation now that it, it seems to me to be in the too hard basket. I don't, I don't know how to mend 
a lifetime of these moments of pain. Because I wish that that seven-year-old story was the only story, but but that story has been repeated. You know, I've been disowned by my mother on a two or three occasions. Mm. Uh, that terrible son message has come through. I'll give you another example how mm. my mum's not a particularly well person. Mm. My mum is a dog breeder. Mm. And she, uh, in my childhood, she bred poodles. Mm -hmm. And one year, for the beginning of university years now for me, I noticed that uh, one of the, the gift shops in the mall was selling a beautiful porcelain poodle. It was worth a couple of hundred dollars. Mm. And I was this poor university student, so I was paying it off throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And just as it got close to Christmas time, the local bargain uh, store started selling a very similar item <laughs> and so when I presented the the expensive porcelain poodle my mum thought it was the one from the bargain bin yes and said oh you've just bought this cheap thing from the warehouse again yeah. you, you know you're a terrible son and I remember in that moment I'm 19 mm. and I burst into tears yeah. and I begged mum for forgiveness mm. even though at the same moment the other mm. part of my brain is saying Aaron what are you apologizing for? You've done nothing wrong. Yes. She's mistaken. Yes. But she had pressed on that bruise, and I heard myself saying, yes, mum, you're right. I'm a terrible son. I've done a terrible thing. Please forgive me. Yeah. And it wasn't even true. And and even if you had bought it at the warehouse or to translate to America, the dollar store, um, it, it, it that's still, I mean, the, the fact that you'd thought about it and made that connection uh, shouldn't have been an impediment, but as you as you said, your mom just couldn't get beyond her. I don't I don't want to put a word here. Let me let let me phrase it as a question. What do you think? Why do you think your mom? This is such a big question, so feel free to touch it lightly because there's other things I want to ask. But why do you think your mom acts acted and acts like that towards you, her? only son. Well, you, you're right to say it's complicated, so I'll tell you one story as mm. a little window into it, and we'll leave it. Mm. And that is that her mum, when she was dating a man during my mother's childhood, said to my mum, I'm sorry, honey, but I can only ever love one person at a time, and it's just not your time. Oh, gosh, no, seriously, no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> So let me then follow up with a question. There'll be people listening who also have had problematic, difficult relationships with their parents. Um, and I can imagine they're, they're dying to find out uh, what you did. Um, but before I get to that very specific question of how you have healed, how you are healing, I should say, how you've been able to make sense of it, maybe unpack that great 60-minute chat that you started at the beginning. Um, I want to ask, I, I know that you're a dad. So, or how have you translated, like how, how, have, how, how has it affected your being a parent? How has it affected your relationship with your family? Well, I think on the one hand, it has made me far more conscious and the positive of, of the need for connection with my children, of, of really wanting to have with them what I never knew as a child. But sadly, the truth that they would be quick to say as well is that it also made me a very critical parent. It made me difficult to please. 
because essentially i was still living out that same script remember the healing didn't begin till i was 37 and by that stage uh you know my, my oldest daughter was a teenager yeah so so much of her childhood had already passed and and i had been that critical difficult to please parent who was still playing at that script that in order to get love you need to perform wow wow so that's a good segue and i may even circle back depending on our time here but what has been the resources the approaches the attitude that has facilitated your healing what obviously you you've got good insight here we are talking about it that's so fundamentally important if you don't know about it and you can't face it and you can't deal with it obviously but what what have been the kind of tools and the approaches that you've brought to bear to help with your healing well i think there's there's been the sort of the cognitive healing path the the rethinking you know, being encouraged in therapy to realize that in that moment where my mum said, you're a terrible son, that moment is much more about her than is it about me. Yeah. It's about her grieving and her being in pain and her lashing out because she was in so much pain. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's about rethinking about, you know, can other people actually decide the truth about you and realizing, no, they can't, that that other people are cracked mirrors. They see the world through the cracks of their own brokenness, their own pain, their own sin. And that I had looked into my mother as a mirror that day and mistakenly believed the cracks were in me, that the cracks were in the mirror. That was her pain I was seeing. Uh, And beginning to realize, and again, rewrite that script, that that worth is something that is given, that's not earned, that it is a inbuilt feature of humans and this is where my faith made more sense to me than ever because suddenly i realized that being made in the image of god meant that god had deposited worth in the very fiber of my being and that my my worth was not going up and down with my performance it wasn't going up and down Mm. with the the feedback i was getting from others Mm. so that was the cognitive part but the the feeling part i think came much more in a relational way that i was so grateful that god had given me my wife, Debbie, who was so able to continue to to connect and to love and to comfort me all through that. And knowing for the first time in my life that there was someone who I could actually count on, whose pain wasn't going to get in the way, who could actually be there for me, meant that I was able to to really leverage that love and let it kind of go all the way in. And so I've got some some tools that I can employ when the bruise gets pressed on. But I promise you the bruise is still there. So let's talk about that. Share a couple of the, the tools that you use um, specifically. What, what what are the kind of go-tos? And, and I'm aware that you, you know, and I want to talk about your counseling and coaching practice uh, in the conclusion and encourage people to connect with you. Uh, and I'll put the, you know, the details in the notes, the show notes, but you know, you, you're obviously a professional. This is what you do, and you do it. You do it fantastically. But what is it that you, as an individual, uh, it may be the same as what you're offering your, your those you serve, your clients. But what are some of the the practical ways that you can provide uh, balm to those those bruises? Well, there's a couple of practical ways, and again, if we take those those two different dynamics I talked about, the that cognitive rewiring happens for me 
through the type of counseling I first engaged with, and as you say, I still give notes like this to my clients called Truth Coaches. And I was doing breakfast radio and I would be standing in the kitchen while the coffee machine was making myself a coffee at 5 a.m. But I'd have my eyes shut and I would be saying to myself things like, worth is given, not earned. I have worth before I do or say anything. Mm. The only one who can tell me about my worth is God and he's crazy about me. Mm. And I'd be telling myself these things over and over and over again. Wow. And whilst I can't delete that old pathway, mm. I can put in a new one. Mm. But the other is more sort of problematic for me in that I don't remember to do it enough. And that mm. is that because of the sense of disconnection, my tendency has been towards uh, caring for myself in self-reliant but not always helpful ways. Mm. You know, my relationship with food, relationship with pornography, Mm. has not been a healthy part of my story, but it has been a part of trying to comfort myself when I feel terribly alone. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'm glad that I remember that friends exist because the, the one of the enduring effects of my childhood is that when I'm not in the presence of people who care about me, it's as if they cease to be. Mm. And so I have to make a much more intentional effort to reach out to connect with those who I know love me mm. and to sense that again and to use that, the real love, the real connection as the source of comfort so that I can break free of those self-reliant and harmful things that I might otherwise be tempted to do. So what you, I think such a powerful lesson that, that I, I, I hope, I, well, let me reinforce for, for those that are listening is that you are very intentional. You bring to mind what has happened destructively in your past, in this case with the relationship with your mother. You don't just kind of push it in the past and, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. It's not an issue anymore. No, you recognize that it has a hold, it has a deep negative effect on your life. And, and the way you deal with it is you're very forthright and upfront. And you, you, you literally have a, a script that you're saying about your worth. Uh, you're, you're, you're countering it. You're creating, as you said, neural pathways, neural pathways to try and counteract. And I think that's an incredibly important point to make is that it's so easy to ignore it or to blot it out with alcohol or some other substance to distract yourself with you know, whatever it is that's, uh, whether it's a ridiculous amount of entertainment of TV or just insane busyness to to blot it all out. But in fact, what you're saying, you cut through all of that and you say, no, 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 on a daily basis, I'm going to face it. I'm not going to like it. It's going to suck, but I'm going to face it. And I think that's incredibly powerful, an incredibly powerful message and, and I want to ask you, um, and you, you were very honest about being a, you know, a dad, and as you said, it was 37 years old and you, 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 your child was a teenager already. Since then, and again, I, I'm getting personal, so please feel free to deflect, um, what advice would you have from your experience of how you can parent more... Uh, more positively, more constructively, when your own parent was so destructive, how, how, what what advice do you have there as, as now as for those who are who are parenting and have such destructive backgrounds? 
Well, some work needs to be done for us to come to terms with the way in which we relate to others. So for me, of course, it was this very weak connection to other human beings and this belief that relationships were fragile and that they were probably going to end anyway. Mm. And because they were probably going to be ending, there was no need to work too hard. There was no need to repair things if things got tough. Mm. So to be conscious, oh, I had a particular style and, and set of impulses that often lead me in the wrong direction. And, and really, that's what you were alluding to before, that we can either live out the automation that's been installed, or we can uh, use intentionality to overwhelm the automation and say, this is not time for the automation. Mm. Uh, so I think there is a, there is something in that. What I, I do want to say, because I had, in so many ways, felt like I'd blown it with uh, at least two of my kids, mm. is to say that it's never too late to begin the repair job. Yeah. And and that has been a wonderful part of the story for me is is now, today, you know, my, my oldest girl is 26, and, and we probably have the best relationship, definitely have the best relationship we've ever had. Wow. Uh, that we've worked hard to restore. And, and that's the good thing is that once we commit to being reliably available for others mm. and, and, and enough time passes that their brain acknowledges that actually they are reliable, mm. things begin to shift. So, mm. you know, in terms of those sort of mantras and, and, and statements that I use, mm. you know, I'm often reminding myself that I need to make sure that I go for connection, not mm. correction. Interesting. I realize how much of my parenting was correction talk. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. As you and kind of had, you, were cri- you said you were very critical and expecting perfection, yeah. which was the correction rather than connection. Can I ask, um, so now, you know, just a, 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 talking a bit theologically for a second here, what role has forgiveness played in your life, in your journey uh, whether it's the forgiveness in relation to yourself, the forgiveness in relation to your mum or, or, or others. Has that been a, a feature of your life? I mean, forgiveness is critical. And I'm often thinking to myself that, you know, I can't afford to burn the bridge of forgiveness because I need to walk over it too. Mm. So I, I need that bridge as much as anybody. I think what I have learned is that distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. That forgiveness creates the bridge that makes reconciliation possible. But it's not necessarily going to be able to happen. It's not necessarily going to be wise for it to happen, which is essentially where I've ended, for the moment at least, with my mum. Is that I would say, hand on heart, that I've forgiven her. I don't carry bitterness towards her. Mm. I'm very empathetic towards her story. Mm. But that doesn't turn her into somebody who it's safe for me to be in a relationship with. Yeah. And that's very sad for me and for her that that's the truth of the matter. Yeah. So reconciliation is a separate issue. Yeah. Can we build again? Well, that's going to take both people committing to doing something differently. What do you – there is a movement um, that uh, – and it, it's not often talked about, but, but it, is, it, it, it exists in a, a large number of families. And it, you don't see it discussed. It's kind of covered up. But what do you think about this movement, this, this reality of people disowning their parents, saying, you know what? I thank you biologically, um, but I'll take it from here and I don't feel any obligation to meet with you, to send you cards at certain times of the year, to even call you mother. 
um, you know, we're done. Almost like, you know, you, you had a neighbor for a couple of years and you move out. You don't have any sense of obligation to stay close to that neighbor. Um, what do you think of that? Is that something that you've had to wrestle with and maybe made a decision on? Or is that uh, something that you find perverted? What, what are your thoughts? Well, that emancipation thing, of course, is a very kind of difficult thing and perhaps different from what I'm talking about. And, and look, you know, in the last 24 hours, I've still exchanged text messages with my mum. We still have some connection. We just don't spend time together anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, I think every story is different. So it would be unwise to cast it over, over all stories. But what I do notice is that often when someone chooses that most severe disconnection, they do it very young before their brain has finished developing. Mm. And the, you know, the last part of the brain to develop, the prefrontal cortex, is the part of our brain that can uh, link today's actions with tomorrow's consequences. Mm. And that's why teenage boys are dangerous behind the wheel of a car, mm-hmm. because they don't know how to connect today's actions with tomorrow's consequences. Yep. And so I, su- I suspect that the problem is, is that it, it makes it too definitive, too difficult to come back from. Yeah. And such grand declarations are almost impossible to undo. Mm. And so for me, I'm always much more mindful to say, I may have taken the off-ramp in this conversation, but I'm always looking for another on-ramp. Ah, that's excellent. So so the those who are listening who are estranged do, do have deeply problematic relationships with their parents and maybe even their siblings to broaden it a bit that's a really wonderful uh way to finish that sense of you know though you're on the off-ramp you're always looking for the on-ramp you're always looking for that that way of reconnecting and and re-establishing the relationship that because this has been uh, an exceptional uh 30 plus minutes i know it's hard to believe it's been 30 minutes but you have so much to offer, and it's so interesting to hear you speak. And I have to say, it's been a weird experience for me to to flip the tables. I've been, <laughs> I've gone from, I mean, it's been many years, but uh, you know, I was, always, you were always the one interviewing me, and here I am interviewing you, and and you were an exceptional, uh, are an exceptional interviewer. And I want to give you a plug. Uh, um, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Aaron runs a, a wonderful uh, counseling and coaching. It's called AI Counseling and Coaching. I will put that uh, AI for Aaron Ironside. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, the His details are there, his email. Um, he does uh, Zoom, uh, virtual uh, counseling and coaching. Uh, and uh, I'm sure he'd be very interested to have a conversation with you and to see what how he may be able to assist you in, a, in your uh, whatever you're facing. So, Aaron, it has been such a a gift and a blessing to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. All right. God bless you. You have a good day. Well, if you like this podcast, I encourage you to write a positive review to give it five stars. And also, don't forget to subscribe. God bless you.